0: Good morning, my friends. So at this time in the service, I'd like for you to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is revealed to us in the scriptures. I prepared some thoughts and challenges from you based on my reading of Luke 19. Luke is about three quarters of the way through the Bible. In chapter 19, Formally, I'd like to wish you a happy Fourth of July, Happy Independence Day. I love good holiday weekend. Everybody's always so relaxed and chill and restful. Eyes of me getting in trouble during a sermon on a holiday weekend significantly decrease because everybody's just like, eh. family's around, weather's nice out. Let's just calm down. I volunteer for for holiday weekends. This is it's wonderful. If your neighborhood's anything like mine, then you didn't get any sleep last night. Um, all the fireworks and explosions going off, and it's just the one time of year where everybody just becomes an expert in mini bombs, and I've decided, since I live on the west side, it's a, it's a whole weekend event of just nonstop fireworks. is Last night, instead of why, trying to beat it, why not join it, and I decided to... Go to bed last night watching um, Band of Brothers, <laughs> and it was awesome because you know they're constant its a World War II thing. They're constantly getting taking fire, but all around me was just like gunfire and bombs blowing off. It was, if you, you know, it, tonight maybe it's gonna, maybe you should watch Saving Private Ryan or something, uh, and just let that just soak in a little bit. Is there a more patriotic thing? Never mind. Okay, that's, the more I think about it. Um, So since it's so restful uh, this morning, I want to continue in that rest and just give you some space to read this text silently by yourself. We're going to read a parable from Jesus, Luke 19, verse 11 to 27. I want to give you a minute to just read that silently, think about it, pray through it, and uh, maybe we can have a chance uh, to dialogue. I'll read it out loud uh, in a moment. Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. If you're willing to, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke 19, and verse 11. While they were still listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was nearing Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. He called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work until I come back, he said. But his subjects hated him. They sent a delegation after him to say, We do not want this man to be our king. Nevertheless, he was made king, and he returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came to him and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came to him and said, Sir, your mina has made five more. His master answered, Take charge of five cities. Another servant came to him and said, Sir, here's your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you, because you're a hard man. You take what you did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. And the master replied, And I'll judge you by your own words, wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you put my money not in deposit, so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And he said to those standing by, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has ten. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. These are the very words of God. So in your reading of it, in your time thinking, did anybody have any thoughts or questions or anything that they felt like uh, was new that you'd like to just sort of uh, process? I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> or any questions? Yeah. Why the of the One question up here. One sec. Why the detail of this Santa Delegation Act? They didn't want to use their case. I know. Yeah, this is a great question. Why? what's up with all these details? It seems kind of uh, very specific about the delegation being sent after him uh, to chase and become his king. This is, this is all part of the world of the parable that he's building. I love paying attention to stuff like that. I have some thoughts on that. Uh, what was the question in the back? Kind of wild. That's. Yeah, how do you take the world of the parable? And sometimes, is it all pointing to something specific, or is it a persona? Is it just trying to prove a point? Or, I mean, we got to mine it, but at, at the same time, it can be difficult to. I mean, what conclusion can you draw from that? A king? Killing people, or do they get killed? That's a better question. It doesn't say. You never know. I mean, Luke loves to mess with people like that. You know, the the older brother, in the parable of the prodigal son, he goes, uh, all that I have is yours. And then, what happens? (laughs) Does he go into that party, or does he not? You know, the the good Samaritan, he he puts that guy in the the hotel and gives him some money. And does he live? (laughs) Does he get home? Like, what? A question that I, you know, think is important is, what's a mina? This is my personal question because I get confused very easily. There's a sister parable to this in Matthew called the parable of the talents, which is even worse because I know the word talent in English means something. In my whole life, I just started thinking, okay, what's a talent? What's a talent? Guitar. Play the guitar. This is what... The Lord has given me, is, and I've got to figure out how to play the guitar in a way that makes 10 times more Christianness to the guitar playing, and so, you know, how do you gauge that? Is that even close? Maybe. Uh, it's a portion of money. I don't know if you picked up on that because he said, put this to work and, and all that, and three months wages is what they're saying a mina is. I don't know what that would be. Somebody throw out a number of three months of wages, generally speaking. I guess we got it pretty diverse. All right, let's just not say that anymore. Let's just say, let's just say mina, in case, you know, we wants to get mad or whatever. Uh, mina, three months wage, it's a very valuable thing that was given to them to be responsible for. The way I'd like to look at this parable, then, is through uh, three lenses, uh, three simple questions, Who, what, and why? Who is Jesus talking to when he says this? Obviously people who understand what a manna is, right? So there's something there. Who is he talking to? And then what is he saying with with, uh, this parable? And why should we care? Why do they care? Why does anybody care? Hopefully I can try and keep those as separate as possible. But they'll all kind of blend into the same uh, kind of thing here. So, who is Jesus talking to? Well, an easy way to figure this out is to look at the literature itself. Look at the the, the heart and the thrust of Luke's gospel. The heart of Luke's gospel, actually, the last ten chapters, is leading up to this point. It's this 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 chapter 19 is the precipice of Luke. Ever since the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is saying, I have set my face towards Jerusalem. And then you start to see this slow progression of Jesus going to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen. You can, you can sum this up, uh, this whole section, in the phrase famous last words. He knows that he's going to die. The words that he shares in the last 10 chapters build momentum, build, they have a, a weightiness to them because he, he's not messing around with what he's saying. You can start to see some uh, momentum growing here, even in chapter 18 and verse 35, if you know your geography. What does it say? And Jesus approached Jericho, and there was a blind man on the side of the road. What does 19 verse 1 say? And then Jesus entered into Jericho, and there was a tax collector named Nicodemus, uh, trying to see him. I mean, you start, he's intentionally moving us towards Jerusalem. And Jericho is only 15 miles away, it's as close as Rockford. He's that close to reaching his destination, and, and things are starting to heat up. Look at what verse 11 says. He said this parable because the people around him were expecting the kingdom of God to appear immediately. The closer he gets to Jerusalem, the closer he's starting to look like he's going to be the next king of Israel. He's going to be this zealot leader that's going to lead them to freedom. This is the Passover weekend for them. This is the 4th of July weekend for them. And it's intense because they're not like us celebrating our freedom. They're still in, uh, they're they're an occupied nation. (laughs) Can you imagine Having to be religiously obligated to celebrate freedom when you're not free. How long do you think it would last if we celebrated 4th of July? If if for some reason this country became uh, occupied or, or somebody else is taking over for us? This is why if you read Jewish history, there's a lot of drama that happens around Passover. A lot of revolts happen because this emotion doesn't really make sense. You can even see the next story after the parable is Palm Sunday, uh, the triumphant entry, right? These people are going crazy. They're uh, they're waving palm branches. They're putting their cloaks down in front of them. They're saying in Hebrew, Hosanna, which means, save us, please. Save us, please. The blind man even saw it. What did the blind man say? Son of David. That's just, it's not something you just say to people. <laughs> this is a expectation for him to be the king, the next king that's like David who leads them uh, through war and revolution to a new uh, age, to a new season where the kingdom of God is putting everything uh, back to where it belongs. It's thick. It's palpable. This is intense. Who is Jesus talking to? These people. And what happens in Later in verse forty-one is troubling to me when he looks at all of these people, and he weeps. let guys just sort of pause a little. Let's just scare you a little bit because think about it. My whole life I have been kind of trained under the assumption that in order to be a Christian, uh, you have to acknowledge your need uh, for redemption or for a Savior, and then you have to look to Jesus to be that Savior. And on paper, these people are pretty much a bullseye for that exact paradigm. They recognize that they have a need for a savior. They have a need for redemption. They have a need for somebody to rescue them. And then they're saying to Jesus out loud, save us. Does it cause you to just sort of wonder a little bit why Jesus looks at that and weep? Never in a million years would I think Jesus would look at that and weep and be grieved and deeply troubled. Is it possible to uh, desire freedom and redemption, desire justice and restoration, and call upon the name of the Lord, and it it'd still be missing something? This is who Jesus is talking to, and the reason why He weeps is because, yes, they're looking for Him to save them, but honestly, deep down, they'd, they'd take anybody. They don't want Jesus necessarily to save them. They want someone to save them. They want to be uh, They want someone to be the next king uh, and lead this insurrection uh, and lead the revolution. And what pains Jesus is at what cost they'd be willing. To do that could illustrate this tension with a story from, you know, five or six years ago. I'll never forget. I was at my parents' church uh, up north, and they are having a prayer meeting outside. And for some reason, this has never happened, some reason they asked me to lead a song. Notice I didn't say sing a song. I'm not not the greatest singer, but I can lead a song. Uh, And so I led the hymn... um, it is well with my soul. I love it. And for some reason, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes there's a song that just sort of gets you. It's just the right words, the right time, and you just start really just singing it and feeling it. You're belting it out, deep diaphragm, you know, and it's the right key. And I got to that last verse. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall become sight. Because I mean, that's a deep prayer of mine. <laughs> I do believe that when the Lord returns and the age of the Messiah is here, where he's writing all the, this is going to be a really good thing. The sky will be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. And after we got done with that prayer meeting, this 80-year-old woman walks up to me, puts her arm around me, kisses me on the cheek, and she says, Danny, I love that verse too. But you know what, most days I pray, Lord, just wait one more day because my grandkids don't know you and I'm still working on them. Wait one more day. They're very close, but they don't know you yet. At what cost do they want Jesus to save them? This is what grieves him because it says in verse 10 what Jesus is looking for. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And they, were, they would rather him just do away with the lost and, and rescue them. It's challenging and convicting because they want Jesus to move them from point A to point B. And that can sting us a little bit. How many times do I just wish that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look to Jesus just so that he can get me to heaven? From point A to point B. How many moments in my life have I just been concerned about me getting from a, this place to a more comfortable place? These people that Jesus are talking to have given themselves permission to give up on the laws, to give up on the Roman. They've given themselves permission to give up on the person who has a different theological idea from them, to give up on the person who has a different um, worldview than them, to give up on the person who looks like their enemy. We have not been given permission to give up hope on anybody. We have not been given permission to give up on our calling of being blessed to be a blessing. This was the point of Israel being risen up in the first place. Not to be blessed to just exist in a a state of blessing while everyone else is lost. Sometimes we just gotta evaluate ourselves. Have I given myself permission to give up on the other person? And look at Jesus weeping and saying, if only you had known the thing that really made for peace. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I didn't mean to get all dramatic here. That's something to think about. This is who he's speaking to. What is he saying? What is he saying with this? Well, let me pick up on some of the nuances uh, that, that we were talking about here uh, because I think that there's some things to, to see politically that uh, are really challenging. Uh, let me put it this way. The, <laughs> there's no way that they could be actually in position to bring a new king to their country unless they're politically poised to do that. They, they, haven't had a king. they don't have a king right now. So I mean, they're, they're in good position to, to elect one or to find one. How do they get this uh, momentum that they seem to be so uh, you know, excited about? Like, they haven't had a king for the last 30 years or so. Herod the Great is their last king. And uh, so Herod the Great is a very important person, especially if you live in Jericho. He brought a lot of uh, economy to Jericho. He, he made this huge palace there, which is actually right at the road. There's a Roman road that's been uncovered that goes up this ravine all the way to Jerusalem where scholars say, this is how you get to Jerusalem. And that is obvious Right at the end of that road at Jericho is this enormous palace that's on either side of this ravine. There's a bridge that goes across, and this is called Herod's Winter Palace. Now, right, let me tell you this story. Right before Herod uh, dies, there's some major drama that he has with uh, one of the high priests. They, long story short, tear down this uh, golden eagle that he made and uh, for religious convictions, of course, and he ends up killing that priest and his disciples. One year later, he's passed away. And his son, Archelaus, who I call Archie. (laughs) Archelaus, or Archie, has uh, a lot of the same tyrannical genes that his uh, father does and some um, architectural kind of pursuits as well. He uh, decides to make a stand because uh, one year after these priest, this priest and disciples have been um, put to death, there was a protest. And guess what time of year it was? Passover. So they're all up at the Temple Mount and they're protesting this unlawful death. And so Archie decides to send his uh, military down there to intimidate the protest. Well, as if that ever works, uh, this escalated the protest to a full-on riot. So then this became a battle. And Josephus, the historian, records that that day, 3,000 people were killed on the Temple Mount. Archelaus is not really well liked. Shortly thereafter that event, he goes to Rome because he wants to be commissioned legitimately to be the next king. So he goes to Caesar to seek a commission, uh, to be commissioned to be king. But the only problem is his entire family 50 people from Jerusalem who are backed up by an 8,000-person petition go to Caesar as well to say, we do not want this man to be our king. And the cool part about that story is they actually succeed. I love stories like this where the people actually stand up to the tyrant and it works. He never gets named king. He gets named Ethnarch, which is basically a glorified governor. And it only lasts about 10 years. Really, the, the, uh, one of the only things he did was build a city, named it after himself, and then he repaired that palace in Jericho uh, to be even more glorious. Him and Chip and Joanna Gaines um, did some work in this palace. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so this is, uh, in, in the mind of the listener, this parable, this is their... Uh, re- recent political context and they actually have the momentum so when jesus says this uh jesus is standing in jericho uh nearby this palace i uh, i mean presumably it's one of the biggest things in this city of course even if he's headed towards jerusalem he's gonna pass by this palace of archelaus and and herod the great and then he just gets this story in his mind that really has a. Uh, Nothing to do with anything, just something he just thought about was, let's say uh, once upon a time there was a king or a nobleman who goes away to a far country to get his kingship. But then people, they didn't like him for it. So they sent a delegation after him to stop him from becoming king. Anybody with the brain who's listening to this is there, they go, I know the end of this story. They could write the rest of this story. What would they say? And then the people succeeded, and then the people elected their own king, not Caesar, the, the God's Messiah ra- raised up and, and led them to freedom and liberty, and they lived happily ever after. But Jesus twists the end of this parable. He changed. so at first it's historical, and then he changes it at the end and says, and then he was made king. Nevertheless, he became king. And he came home and put to death everybody that was against him, as a king does. So what's that going to do? What does that do emotionally to the person that's listening to this? How are you celebrating the idea of Archelaus? How, are you, how, does that, how is that going to work? I'll tell you what. Jesus is saying, this is what he's saying. What happens when when the story has a different ending than what you expected? What happens when you're writing the story and you have an expectation that it's gonna go a certain way and it doesn't? What does loyalty look like? When your king says, I want you to turn left, but you wanna turn right. Tell you myself, the quickest point of, of me becoming unraveled is when I have an expectation for life to go in a certain direction, and then it doesn't, it goes in this direction. When I have an expectation for uh, anything really that I'm planning on or hoping on to happen and then it doesn't happen, that is the point when I easily start to disavow certain loyalties or start to, you know what I really start to say? I don't want you to be my king. In the heart of every person is a throne. And when push comes to shove, When the story's not going the way you expected the story to go to, do you say, I'm gonna stick with this king or I'm gonna be king? When you're frustrated because life isn't going a certain way, when you're feeling like life is too complicated or it doesn't happen the way you planned it happening, who becomes king? Jesus is saying this because he doesn't want fair-weather followers. He knows that there's going to be a plot twist. It's funny to me that we actually think that life is going to be the fairy tale ending so often. Where do we get that? We expect it to go this way romantically. We expect it to go this way companionship-wise. We expect it to go this way financially. We expect it to go this way, and then all of a sudden life changes, and we think, God, how could you? I'm not going to trust you anymore. I'm not going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to turn the other way. Jesus knows this, and And if you've been reading the Bible and uh, reading what the Bible says about life, let alone what Jesus says about life, you're going to know that life, according to the Bible, according to the direction that we have from God's word, is not going to be pretty. It's going to be complicated. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. But narrow is the path. And it's hard and few people find it that leads to life. What's loyalty going to look like when you realize the path actually is narrow and hard? What's loyalty going to look like when you realize that those who seek to save their life are going to lose it, but those who lose their life for Christ's sake actually find it, but it's only going to be found through you carrying your cross every day? Jesus knows where this is going. And he believes that he can have followers who actually have substance, who actually are these people in the parable who in light of the whole culture saying, we don't want him to be king, say, I'll I'll remain loyal. He believes that we can be a people like that and it's kindness of him to to tell a story with a plot twist because that's the way it is. That's what he's saying. Why is he saying that? Because this parable really is a parable that's in, it's, it's imploring us for faithfulness. Let's take the parable uh, as it is and let's lay it over our life um, in like uh, as a paradigm and uh, see how that works. So let's say Jesus is the nobleman who left, away, uh, left to, to receive his kingship. I'm pretty comfortable with that. He's gone somewhere. So uh, we get that emotionally. And he says... Uh, until I return, put the mina to work. Well, okay, so let's figure out what is the mina? What is the valuable thing? It's not, I don't, I, okay, I'm not going to go to salvation because that's a gift. This isn't really a paradigm for a gift, it's something that's a responsibility. Uh, so, what, uh, what is the mina? Well, I have a verse from 2 Corinthians uh, for us to, to, to sort of wrestle with a little bit. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Not just gave Corinth, not just gave the Apostle Paul, it's us. He has given us something. What if the ministry of reconciliation, what if this is the minor? The ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself Not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Why don't you just leave that up, Matt? That's, I like that verse. What if the mina in, this, in, in our paradigm is the ministry of reconciliation? You've been given something of great value as a, a responsibility to invest in whatever you want to invest in. Now the question becomes then, how do we become faithful servants? Because faithfulness is really what they're commended for in the end. Just, this isn't about success or failure. Those things are easy to quantify. Faithfulness is scary because it's not easy to quantify. How do you, I mean, as soon as you start trying, you become unfaithful, right? I mean, you, you never met a husband to say, how faithful do I have to be? That, that's, that's the wrong heart. That's the wrong attitude. You can't put a minimum on it. Faithfulness is how faithful can I be? How, how far can I take this? This is the heart of the faithful person. It's scary, but it's simple. Because the wicked servant, the only difference between the faithful servant and the wicked servant is one of them tried. The only way that you can, I mean, unfaithfulness isn't like a static thing in the background of your life, like an unknown sin or something. It's a choice. And you know what I'm talking about. When you're feeling convicted, right? You know, you've got, you're reasonably sure that God wants you to do something, and, and you say no. Should have talked to that person, I got to talk to this person, or I got to be generous here, or I got to do this, and I feel like I should. But for whatever reason, and sometimes it is that dramatic, you know. Sometimes it is a, a conscious decision made over a long period of time. There's a really tricky word out there called later. <laughs> okay, you know, I, I, that's still a decision, I will, I'll step up, I'll get in the game, but obviously I might do that later. I've got stuff to pay off. I got stuff to, I'm not gonna be generous now. I gotta pay, I gotta do, I'll do it later though. Of course, I I love God, I wanna do this. I'll I'll reach out to my neighbor, but I mean, I, I'm right in the middle of Stranger Things on Netflix. I gotta go finish that thing. I can't, I, I'll do it later. I'll reconcile that relationship someday. I'll ask for forgiveness and be humble later. And at some point in life, the word later becomes a word no. It becomes the unfaithful servant who says ultimately just no. I mean, he claims to be afraid of, the, of the, the, the king, but he wasn't. The king called him out on it right away. He's like, that's not true. If you, you're not afraid of me. If you were afraid of me, you would have done something else. You're shamed. Everybody else was, was against me, and you had the chance to be for me, and you decided to just sort of talk it away. The only way that we can be unfaithful with the ministry of reconciliation, my friends, is if we sit on it. If we spend our entire life just pretending like we don't have anything, we don't have it. We'd wrap it up, hide it. Let me just implore you to faithfulness. It's not about if you mess up or make a mistake, it's about if you try. It's about if you get out there and you try. They're not commended for the amount. The amount is arbitrary. One gets 10, one gets five. They both get a high five. They both say well done. You were faithful. You tried something. The faithful person doesn't look at themselves and say, what if I make a mistake? What if this doesn't work out for me? The faithful person says, look, your mina has increased. There's nothing to do with me. It's your value that's now greater, not mine. That's faithfulness. I'm not trying to be too dramatic, but let's let this just convict us. You have been given something something of great value to invest to invest in not just people that agree with you but to invest into a whole world that's post-Christian saying we don't want him to be our king just watch it grow no longer are we going to be ashamed of the gospel no longer are we going to hide the manna or or light the lamp and put it under a basket you're the light of the world Go out there and let them watch. Let them see, invest the, your good deeds into a world so that they can see and give glory to your Father in heaven. Get out there because our champion, our leader, our king, for some reason, is making his appeal through us. I know this summer we're supposed to do mes- messages called the uh, Pictures of the Gospel. I don't know if you caught on that. My picture, my contribution would be uh, just right now, everybody just look around to the people that are around you and then repeat after me. It's as though God were making his appeal through us. you want a picture of the gospel, the world wants a picture of the gospel, and they're looking at you. He's making his appeal through you. The world wants to know, does God count sins against me anymore? Is the God of the Christian a God who can forgive? He's making his appeal through us, how we forgive, how we're able to look at our friends and say, I'm letting it go, how we're able to look at other people groups and say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to believe forgiveness for you. I'm going to make an appeal of, of forgiveness through my way of life. The world wants to know, is God of the Christians the God, a God who loves? Even sinners. <laughs> and he's making his appeal through us saying, yes, absolutely. While we were yet sinners, he went all the way. He gave his life for us. God is a God of love, and he is making his appeal through us and how, we, how well we love and confirm that truth to our sphere of influence and the people that are around us. And the only way that you can be unfaithful is if you don't even try. So let's try. Invest. Invest this, value, uh, this valuable thing, the love of God and the people that are around you. Because our leader and Messiah says, I'm not going to give up. He'll never give up. He's not giving up on the blind man on the side of the road. He's not giving up on Nic- uh, uh, Zacchaeus, the outcast tax selector. He's not giving up on the woman who was caught in adultery. He's not giving up on the Roman who has a different theological belief, a different sexual preference, a different ideal, a different way of life. He's not giving up on the, the widow, the orphan, the leper, the sinner, the people who are a mess like me. He's not giving up. He's making his appeal through us though. So if you're with me, let's, uh, let's get out there and invest in some people. Let's just take a moment and pray, evaluate where we are, maybe make a decision. Jesus, thank you for providing reconciliation for even me. Chronically unfaithful <laughs> Serial, unfaithful person, thank you for providing reconciliation and removing sins as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for having mercy that's new every single morning. Thank you for still uh, loving me and loving all of us. We receive your reconciliation. We receive the ministry of reconciliation, and we repent this morning for giving up on other people. We repent this morning for being frustrated when things don't go our way. And we ask you for another portion of encouragement for our loyalty to you in the midst of a culture that says we don't want to be king. When we even join them and say we don't want you to be king, we repent and turn from that. You are our king. We're so proud of you. We repent from hiding the valuable thing that you've given us since tucking it away for fear of failure, for fear of embarrassment, for whatever reason. And we say, um, Lord, give us some courage and bravery to to put in, to invest this ministry of reconciliation and message of reconciliation to the people in our sphere of influence who are lost and confused to our in-laws, to our children, our grandchildren, to our neighbors, to the people that just need to know the truth about who you are. Amen.